Hi, I'm Mark. And I'm Bethan, and welcome to episode 9 of Seeing Red, a UK true don't, crime podcast. No, don't say that bit. I love saying that bit at the end. It's mm. our full name. I guess, yeah, but people know what Seeing Red is now. It's mm. a UK true crime podcast. Okay, yeah, I just Mark don't like the way it. you say it, I think. Yeah, I, Mark hates it, I do apologise. Anyway, hello everybody, welcome to episode 9. Thank you for joining us again. We just wanted to say some thank yous to our new Patreon supporters. So thank you very much to Darren James who also, by the way, is so vocal about us on social media. Oh, okay. He is all over Facebook singing our praises. Amazing. Thank so, you. Yeah, thank you, Darren. Thank you very much to Vicky London. Such cool name. Such cool name. And she's from New Zealand. How oh, crazy okay. is that? I did so, wonder whether she's like Vicky and she's from London, and that's how she came up with a username. Um, and then also, now I apologise in advance in case I completely say your name wrong, Fedor van der Volk. That sounds pretty good. I think it sounds pretty decent. He's, he's from the Red. Netherlands. I'm guessing male, but again, I still don't know for definite about the name. I feel that's a male name. I feel like it's a male name too. Could totally be wrong. From the Netherlands, so thank you very much. And thank you for reaching out on Instagram, because I saw uh, a mention there as well, which was great. Amazing. And then we've also got two people who I can't remember if we mentioned them before or not. So if we did, you get two. If we didn't, then great, obviously. So we've got Louis Pierce. And um, so thank you for your support on Patreon. And then we also had a donation from Jamie Scammell. So thank you to you as well. Thank you, guys. It's so appreciated. It and really is. every bit of support we get like that really does go into making this the best that it can possibly be. If you don't currently support us on Patreon, but you would like to, then you can head over to our page at patreon.com forward slash seeing red podcast, where you'll see there's three different tiers of support. I think it starts at $3 a month. We, we go right up to $10 a month um, and we have different thank you packages mm. uh, depending on the level of support going right up to assigned scripts um, but we've got loads of merchandise so we want to kind of get it out there and, and send it yeah. through and it's either already arrived with you or on your way to all the people we've just named checked so, so someone like vicky london could be waiting a few weeks if that's new zealand it could be sorry I vicky know, i don't know how long things take to go like basically across the world well postcards always take forever when you're on holiday what was the last time you sent a postcard are you like literally this year 1950s? this year or last year really yeah and that took a week from spain oh why didn't you send me a postcard from spain why would i Next time I go on holiday, <laughs> I'm sending you a postcard. I'd love a postcard. Yeah, oh my God, let's do that. I like that kind of, you know, vintage it side of vintage. things. vintage, I love it. Okay, so um, let's get started, because you've kept this episode a bit of a surprise for me, yeah. so I'm really intrigued. Um, yeah, so basically, you did ask a bit earlier on, what am I doing today? And I said, I'm not going to tell you, so you'll have to wait and see. So it's a bit of a departure, I suppose, because we've covered murder, we've covered stalking. Um, I don't think we've covered robbery yet, and I'm not really covering robbery today either. Well, John Palmer was involved in a robbery. He was involved in a heist. But True, Frank case wasn't really about that it was about him so so what do you think i could be covering if it's not murder it's not stalking it's not robbery it's not a scam what could it be oh so it's not a robbery i was assuming you were going to say like a robbery um okay so is it um like kidnapping that's a good guess. Um, to be honest, I thought I'd trip you up a bit because when I say it's not a robbery, technically it, it kind of is. Well, it's a heist, <laughs> but it's an attempted heist. Oh, okay, that's really interesting. So they didn't actually go through, like it didn't go ahead? Yeah, it was a bit of a disaster, which we'll come on to in a bit more that detail. so exciting. What is the case? Well, in a plot that could have been ripped straight from the pages of one of Ian Fleming's James Bond novels, mm-hmm. today's case features the audacious attempted theft of 12 precious gems 
Oh, see, this sounds very exciting. This is a good one. It should be a good one. Had the would-be thieves made off with their loot, this would have gone down in history as, what, as one of the world's biggest ever robberies. In order to provide some context around this week's case, I'm going to take you back to the dawn of the new millennium. Can you remember what you were doing on the dawn of the new millennium, Bethan? Well, I was still a child and my mum and dad had one of those parties where everyone was like, if the like millennium bug happens and we all die tomorrow, well, at least we had a good few drinks. I think there would have been some good parties then because yeah. there was a, a lot of concern around that. So we were all upstairs, but my mum and dad would let us come down and, and say hi to all the people. But I think I would have been 11 or 10 or something. So I don't yeah. think I was, I think I was still a baby. So you didn't neck a bottle of gin? Well, yeah, obviously. I oh, okay, just the one, because you were a kid. Of course, sorry, yeah, no, I wasn't thinking. What were you doing? I you can't, remember? I honestly can't really remember. I think I was at home, and we didn't really celebrate it for some reason, which is mm. all a bit Jehovah's Witness, <laughs> um, which I'm not. <laughs> and apologies to any Jehovah's Witness uh, listening. Yeah, um, But it is so, isn't it? Because I didn't mm. celebrate lots of stuff. So, no, didn't really celebrate it, um, but not for any particular reason. Just came and went. I'd have been yeah. about 16, I guess. So, so yeah. I think well, the reason we maybe made more of an effort with it is because my dad was in like his work was all around computers and technology and mobile phones he'd probably had a really stressful yeah, run up to the millennium like then shitting himself about the zero zero thing so yeah. um that's probably why it was more of a big deal yeah possibly if you guys have got any really interesting stories in terms of what you did to celebrate millennium yeah. eve then please get in touch um hopefully they're a bit more interesting than mine but we'd love to hear what you got yeah, up mine. to a 10 year old going to bed at 11 o'clock after necking a bottle of gin um, so this key event in our history sets a scene perfectly for a sequence of events that would ultimately lead to six men being sentenced to a total of 75 years in prison for a crime that never really was, and I think also a crime that divided the nation, which I'll come on to a bit more later. Wow. The dawn of the new millennium really was a unique global experience, which will never again be witnessed by any living person today. As fears of a catastrophic global meltdown grew, courtesy of the Millennium Bug, mm -hmm. there was a weird blend of panic mixed with the typical optimism that a new year brings, only this was on a massive scale. Mm -hmm. This once-in-a-15-lifetimes experience would be marked by all denominations, classes and creeds, and unite the planet as one. The first people to witness the dawn of this new era were the inhabitants of a bunch of random Pacific islands that nobody really cares about. You can't say that. What if we have I can say that. No, because I, I think I just we just looked at our stats. Yeah. We don't have any listeners from there. Yeah, but that doesn't make it okay to say no one cares. But there's like literally a million islands in the Pacific and I I can't be bothered to name check them all and there's okay. probably like two people on that island and You're seven people on that island. Well, yeah, I'd say them wrong. Badly. I think the the Christmas islands are part of it. One was Samoa, um which I didn't really know how to pronounce, so I didn't even go there. What's Samoa? Well, I didn't you know if it was Samoa or Samoa oh, okay. or something like that. So anyway, <laughs> they saw it first. But as the Earth continued to rotate on its axis that night, it wouldn't be long before the UK was waving goodbye to 1999 and saying hello to the noughties. More than two million people lined the banks of the River Thames to watch a fireworks spectacular. And people up and down the country were preparing to mark the occasion with their nearest and dearest. Just 10 minutes before the UK officially moved into the new millennium, a number of powerful laser beams were being directed at a flawless De Beers diamond with an estimated value of £200 million. Known as the Millennium Star and considered to be one of the most precious gems in the world, its sparkling shafts of light filled the air as part of an incredible light show in one of the most bizarre buildings in the country. As the Queen, Prince Philip and then Prime Minister Tony Blair, accompanied by his beautiful wife Cherie, basked in its radiant luminosity, it wouldn't be long before this diamond was making headlines for all the wrong reasons. 
At approximately the same time, halfway across the Atlantic, two men from southeast London were heading to New York on Concord to celebrate New Year's Eve. I'd love to have flown on Concord. Yeah, I can't imagine. Clinking their glasses of Dom Perignon as they luxuriated in their sumptuous leather seat, 11 miles up in the air, they were no doubt smirking to themselves as they plotted the heist of the millennium. Now, before I start to tell you about the story of this would-be heist... I should probably explain what I'm on about when I say one of the most bizarre buildings in the country, because this building does play a significant part in today's story. I was trying to work out what you meant by that. I wondered if you'd guessed it so far. I don't know. I'm guessing it's in London. Yeah, and it's around the time of the millennium. But then I don't know when buildings were made, to be honest, Um, because obviously like the gherkin looks weird, but I think that's too recent. Not a bad guess. Okay. Um, it is the Millennium Dome. Oh, why didn't I think of that? Yeah, I was thinking name. it's in the name, for fuck's sake. And people, like, walk on it and all sorts, so... Yeah. Why is it a bizarre building, though? I don't understand why, what's so weird about it. It's a dome. Well, we'll come on to that. I think it's just a bit like a massive weird tent. Um, if you're not familiar with the dome, though, so perhaps if you're not from the UK or if you're kind of under the age of voting, then please allow me to explain what the hell it is. So, yeah, it's a large dome-shaped building, as the name suggests, and it was originally used to house something called the Millennium Experience. So the Millennium Experience was a major exhibition celebrating the beginning of the third millennium that would be open to the public in the year 2000. And it was located on the Greenwich Peninsula in southeast London, right on the River Thames. And it was originally conceived on a much smaller scale under John Major's Conservative government. So the incoming Labour government elected in 1997 under Tony Blair greatly expanded the size, scope and funding of the project, however. Just before its opening, Blair claimed the dome would be a triumph of confidence over cynicism, boldness over blandness and excellence over mediocrity. It became a metaphor for new Labour and in the words of a BBC correspondent called Robert Orchard, the dome was to be highlighted as a glittering new Labour achievement. But it was subsequently criticised by the Conservative Party as anonymous and rootless. Um, so they said it also lacked a sense of Britain's history and culture, and that was what it was supposed to be all about. Oh, so, Christ. you know, completely pointless exhibition, completely pointless building. It became one huge joke and was a massive embarrassment to the country, costing nearly a billion pounds. And that's like 20 years ago. When it finally opened its doors in 2000, few people bothered to visit. And those who did said it was expensive and, well, basically a bit weird and boring. Just a bit shit. <laughs> so if you, if any of our listeners, if you yeah, did I visit it, it, I would love to know um, your experience of it. Because I think it was only open for a year. So the building does still exist, but it's since been rebranded successfully as the O2 Arena. Mm-hmm. So perhaps some of our younger listeners will know of it. I haven't even been to the O2 Arena. I've never been. And I'm not cool. So you've been to the site of today's heist. I have. Or would-be heist. So, in order to lay the foundations of this heist, I'm going to take you back now to February 1999. As the sun rose across London and workers started on their early morning commute, a gang of criminals were making their way to the Nine Elms Lane in Battersea. Careful to avoid being recognised and taking no chances, the men had covered their faces in balaclavas and armed themselves with a number of semi-automatic weapons. As they waited patiently, a security van carrying 10 million quid in cash turned onto Nine Elms Lane. Can you imagine how much money that is if you saw that stacked up? 10 million. I mean, that has got to be 10 massive suitcases full mm. of cash. I don't think they'd be transporting it in suitcases, Mark. I don't know. I think that's not a bad way to move it. Blocking off both ends of the road with a number of vehicles, the gang successfully trapped the van and its valuable cargo wow. of cash. 
As the gang approached the guards, waving their guns around in the air and ordering them out of the vehicle, one of the robbers headed towards a lorry that was to be used as a battering ram to smash open the security van. The lorry had been modified by the gang and a huge metal spike had been welded to its chassis, which had been carefully concealed as the gang made their way across London that morning. As the robber went to start the engine, panic filled his body as he realised the keys weren't in the ignition. Oh my Can you imagine God, that? what an idiot. Knowing there was no other way of opening that cash van, and they knew the guards wouldn't have access to the van for security reasons, mm-hmm. their mission was over before it had really started. Absolute dickhead mistake. Totally. Well, we'll come on to how it happened, which is mm-hmm. quite interesting. Aborting the operation, the gang set fire to the vehicles and fled on the nearby River Thames, escaping on a speedboat in the direction of Chelsea Harbour. Pretty cool. That is really cool. That's very James Bond. So if you're wondering what happened to the keys, then it wasn't really their fault because what had happened was by blocking the road, they caused a bit of a traffic jam and an irate motorist who was on his way to work and stuck in the traffic jam, jumped out of his car, saw the lorry that was blocking everything and took the keys out of the ignition. Just to like... Just kind of like fuck them off. Yeah. Oh my God, that's hilarious. But actually they... In doing that, they stopped them from taking that much money. Yeah, it was quite amazing what what that guy had actually done. Um, But he didn't see that robbery was taking place because it was kind of a bit further up the road. He was just pissed off because he was late for work. Yeah. Although this robbery was unsuccessful, the police immediately realised how sophisticated it had been. These criminals were clever. They were forensically aware. They didn't just torch their vehicles. They literally blew them up. One officer on the scene said it was like something out of a war zone. The gang had an unusual escape method, the boat, and they had engineered their own battering ram. Above all, they had gained intelligence of the route and timings of the cash van, and to say the police were concerned would be an understatement at this time. The police couldn't deny how impressed they were with the organisation and preparation of this aborted robbery. They knew it would only be a matter of time before the gang would strike again. With little to go on due to a complete lack of forensics and any other real evidence, there wasn't much the police could do but sit and wait. Fortunately, they didn't have too long to wait. On the 7th of July in Aylesford in Kent, the gang attempted another similar robbery. This time they got even closer to the cash, managing to hold on to their keys for once, and once again using a specially adapted lorry, which they successfully rammed into the cash van. On this occasion, they were literally inches from the cash when a police car just happened to be in the area and turned up. What luck, like bad luck for them, but also... Like, what good Great that it please. didn't happen, but I just think oh so gosh. far they've just been really unlucky. They really are. And spoiler alert, we'll kind of come on to the Millennium Dome and see how unlucky they were there as mm. well. This time shit got serious because a number of gang members shot at the approaching car. However, none of the officers inside were injured. As was their hallmark, the would-be robbers made their escape in an inflatable speedboat, this time down the nearby River Medway. Detective Superintendent John Shatford. <laughs> what a fucking amazing my... name. Oh my God, Detective Inspector John. And to be honest, he's an absolute legend because he led a, a brilliant operation and he talks about it with such enthusiasm. But yeah, but what a name. What a terrible name I to have. I think I'd have to change my name. I'd change it to Stratford. Yeah, that's a good idea, yeah. Just, it's not much of a difference, but you're not called Shatford. Or at least go for Shitford. Well, no, that's worse. <laughs> well, yeah, but at least it's kind of like... Yeah, this is my name. Yeah, get over it. Yeah. So he was in no doubt that this was the same gang. It bared all those similar hallmarks. In the Nine Elms Lane robbery, the cocky little shits had christened that metal spike. So they'd written the word Gertie on it in big white letters. And in their second raid, they'd once again written Gertie on the spike. Only <laughs> this time, they'd added the words 
persistent, aren't we? Oh, I love that. Like, yeah. I actually quite like them, that they're just still trying, even though they're having bad luck. I kind of love it when robbers taunt the police mm-hmm. in that way. Yeah. I don't know why I like it, but yeah, I just think it shows a bit of a it's sense of humour. isn't it? Yeah, and when I say that this, ultimately the, the dome robbery is what we're going to be looking at, and when I say that divided the nation, the nation was divided into those that said good for you for having a go, and we can see the humorous side. <laughs> but then there was also the, the nation, well, part yeah. of the nation that were like, no, this was really dangerous and people could have died. And so it's still a crime. It's still a crime. People yeah. shouldn't be allowed to get away with it. It's a bit like when you see someone going down the motorway at like 150, they like zoom past you, and a bit of you's like, fucking dickhead. And then a bit of you's like, cool though. Like, yeah. I'm going to do that. I don't know, I hate stuff like that, but there will be other things where... But that's the whole point as well. Mm -hmm. We have a difference of opinion, so... um, That was very much, I think, similar with this case. Mm -hmm. Unlike the Nine Elms Lane raid, this attack provided the police with some important clues as they were able to track some of the vehicles that were used in the raid to an isolated farm in the Kent countryside. The farm was called Tom Farm. What a shit name for farm. That's awful. At least call it like Lane End Farm or something. Like something a bit geographical. Or some, something like Carrot Cruncher Farm. That's shitter than Tom Farm. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know. I think Tom but Farm's no, yeah, appalling. Tom Farm is terrible. And it wasn't in Tom. There is no Tom Was place. it owned by someone called Tom? No. I don't think so. What a load of bullshit. Name your farms properly, people. Yeah, so we'll come back to Tom Farm (laughs) in a minute. But after the unsuccessful robbery in Kent, the police did receive a tip-off from an informer whose identity has always been protected. He is, however, believed to be an associate of Brinks Matt Robber, an M25 road rage killer, and basically all-round nutjob, Kenneth Noy. Oh, our good friend. Yeah, he comes up a few times in our episodes. The one who, when I was first researching, I thought his name was Nove. Nove, and yeah. And I very nearly reco- recorded the entire first episode <laughs> saying Nove. I think I would have noticed because I knew of him. Yeah. So I would have been like, God, that sounds like Kenneth Noy. But... And then I'd have been like, oh yeah. Yeah, it is Kenneth Noy. <laughs> this informant said he'd become aware of a plot to rob the Millennium Dome. He didn't say much more, but recognising that the dome sat right on the banks of the River Thames, the police were convinced that this would be the gang's next target. At a meeting between detectives to discuss the two attempted robberies and also the information they'd received from the informer about the possible raid at the Dome, one detective who had recently visited the exhibition joked, maybe they're after the Millennium Jewels. And after a moment of contemplative silence, the penny dropped and the police counter-attack was put into action. Known as Operation Magician, it would prove to be the Flying Squad's biggest ever undertaking, with literally hundreds of specially trained officers involved. Can you imagine as well being that person who makes a joke and then they're all like, oh no, hang on, shit, Dave, you've cracked it, that's what they're doing. I think to be fair though, yeah, I get what you're saying, they'd have got there eventually, well, even if, because they'd have looked at what is in the dome, why are they looking at the dome. Oh god, um, yeah. But yeah, but yeah, yeah imagine, it's like, weird, isn't it? Chat and someone like, makes a joke and then everyone's like, yeah, but that's, that's yeah, actually true. that's actually true. <laughs> and what, what was he doing visiting the exhibition? It was rubbish anyway. £58 for a family of four. That's not that bad. Yeah, it's 20 years ago. Anyone. In London. Whatever. Anyway, back at Tom Farm, I said we'd go back there. Mm -hmm. The police knew this was a potential hub for the gang. They were storing vehicles there, and so the police set up round-the-clock surveillance. The police knew Tom Farm belonged to the Wenham family, who were local scrap metal dealers. And although they weren't really known to the Metropolitan Police, they were known to the Kent Police. Not necessarily for anything major, but the Wenhams and their son Lee were known to be involved with criminal gangs. And perhaps it wouldn't be long before the criminal gang showed their faces there. 
The police observed a number of stolen vehicles coming and going, including a massive yellow JCB, but nothing much else for a few weeks. So, growing frustrated, their interest was soon aroused when they saw a couple of what I'm going to call rough-looking guys <laughs> chatting to Lee Wenham at the farm. Who doesn't love a rough-looking guy? Exactly. <laughs> These men were soon identified as Ray Betson and William Cochran, the two champagne-swilling guys that were travelling to New York on Concord on Millennium Eve. Growing up on the same street in South East London, they were lifelong friends. Ray Betson had never worked for a living, yet he had a taste for the high life. He wore designer clothes, drove expensive cars, and enjoyed the champagne lifestyle. He owned a house worth half a million quid, so this was in the late 90s, probably worth like £10 million today, uh, with the way property prices are. Um, and although he was known to the police, he'd never really been brought to book for the more serious crimes that he was suspected of being involved in. So he was probably quite a clever person then, if he's managing to... Uh, he was really capture. clever, really mm-hmm. clever guy. He'd served a couple of short jail sentences in the past, and he'd got, I think it was something like 18 convictions, which is quite oh. a lot. Oh, OK, so he did get caught. Yeah, he did get caught, and he did go to prison a couple of times, but that was mainly for things like theft and vehicle offences, so nothing serious, and the police were definitely suspicious that um, he was involved in, in worse things. So mm-hmm. that they, they were concerned that he was involved with a well-known underworld gang who, I, I don't know, who they're on about but Mm -hmm. um, let's not piss any more criminal gangs off I was going to say the Adams family we haven't mentioned them for a few episodes true we try not to some intelligence services had also linked him to uh, the importation and dealing of drugs in the southeast so you know if he was involved in that he would have been quite high up a bit of a head honcho Detective Chief Superintendent John Shatford described Betson as the most assured criminal he had ever met. And he said he's a very dangerous man with connections. He thinks everything through, is meticulous and very forensically aware. Cochrane was a father of two and also had two grandkids. Um, He did have some previous convictions, but mainly for petty crime. Um, He gave his occupation as a plumber and was really considered to be Betson's right-hand man. So not as clever as Betson, but a good wingman, I suppose. Mm, Bit of a man Friday. The police soon identified another member of the gang. This was a guy called Terence Millman, and he was an experienced armed robber. So at the moment, we've got three important people within that gang. There were some peripheral characters that were involved, but I'm not going to go into loads of detail on them. Um, It was very much Betson, Cochrane and Millman that were the the head guys. Detectives then were now confident that they had the key members of the gang and they set about following their every move. And they were also continuing to track the comings and goings at Tom Farm. And at one point they did see a speedboat being towed into a barn. Knowing how the gang targeted cash in transit, the police believed they would strike in early September when the diamonds were due to be moved to the De Beers headquarters in London before being taken to Japan where they were being lent for another display. On the 1st of September the flying squad braced themselves as they prepared to catch the gang in the act. 300 officers were involved with all angles of the dome and the River Thames covered and they even had officers up on a crane. Security staff removed the diamonds and replaced them with replicas. That's a good idea. Definitely very wise before loading them into a security vehicle, which on its route to the De Beers headquarters in London would be making its way through the Dartford tunnel. And that's basically a kind of under the river tunnel, very dark. The officers thought that would be a good location where the gang could strike. Definitely, because they think it would be a good option, but it's also a good option for the police because you could 
block each entrance yeah. and stuff, can't you? So that's clever. So security vehicles started to move the diamonds. However, nothing happened. The diamonds made it safely to the headquarters in London and the gang were just nowhere to be seen. So the police had got it completely wrong. Just when they thought all hope was lost, the police spotted Lee Wenham, Raymond Betson and William Cockrum at the Dome later that very same day. They knew they weren't there to rob the jewels on that day, but just casually walking around as part of their planning and preparation for that big day. The gang were unaware the real diamonds had now left the country. Had they known this at the time, they would almost certainly have targeted them in transit as the police had anticipated. The police now knew the gang would strike inside the dome. Through further investigation of the dates and times the gang had visited the dome, it was then found that every time they'd visited, the Thames was at high tide. The surveillance on the men was significantly increased and the dome was placed under close watch. The police placed an officer in the dome's CCTV room, undercover. I think the police were concerned that there was definitely somebody inside the dome, mm. potentially within within the security operations there, who was feeding information to the robbers. Yeah, definitely. So they put this guy in there, making up some kind of false story in terms of why he was there. Cockrum and Betson were also observed filming the surrounding river and jetty. The surveillance on the gang continued and their visits to the dome became more frequent. In late September, a few members of the gang were spotted testing a speedboat in the harbour in Kent. And the Metropolitan Police were able to identify the possible days um, when the raid could take place. And they communicated this information not only to De Beers, but also to the dome's management. Two of the days the police had identified resulted in aborted attempts. The first aborted attempt occurred in early October and was called off due to a malfunctioning speedboat, which was originally to be used in the getaway. Terry Millman had bought the boat. That's what he was in charge of. So it was his job to go out and buy another boat. So that's what he did. He went out and paid cash. I think it was £3,700. And in the subsequent investigation, the police looked at the receipt and the paperwork and he'd actually signed the paperwork, Terry Diamond. That's incredible. Which is just another one of those twists where you've seen some of that humour brought in. And just so arrogant as well. That's really funny. Yeah, and almost like, did he think maybe he would get caught and that would be a funny story to tell? Yeah, or if he didn't get caught, it's still quite funny to then have that knowledge that your name's been written there and nobody knows. Yeah, again, it's sort of almost taunting the police somehow. The second aborted attempt occurred one day before the date of the actual raid. Um, So that was on the 6th of November. The actual raid was the 7th of November. But this was cancelled when the gang discovered the tide was too low to ensure a safe getaway. After this attempt, the police suspected the raid was imminent and they were convinced the raid would take place the following day. On the 7th of November at 9.30am, Operation Magician was underway and was commanded by our good friend John Shatford. Hundreds of officers, including 40 from the Specialist Firearms Command and 60 armed flying squad officers, were stationed around the Thames and actually on the river itself to hamper any escape attempts. Surveillance officers were also disguised as dome employees and the Millennium Dome CCTV room was used by the police as a control room. All of the officers were briefed at 3am that morning on the contingency plans in place. Before the raid, some officers were positioned behind a dummy wall and others were dressed as cleaners and dome employees with their firearms concealed in things like black plastic bags, portable bins that they were carrying around. Before the raid, four members of the gang had been identified in a JCB earth digger and all were wearing body armour with gas masks. Can you imagine being on a crane, perhaps, a police officer looking at that and seeing that they've got bloody gas masks? Yeah, 
And like body armor, yeah, that's quite scary. Really concerning, yeah. The men were armed with smoke bombs, sledgehammers, a fucking nail gun, which they did say, to be fair, was to be used to penetrate the glass case where the diamonds were being <laughs> housed. Just saying the word penetrate. I think I liked that a bit too much. Yeah. Oh, okay, so it wasn't to like nail someone's hands or head or something, it was to get through something instead. So they say. Okay. The digger was used by the gang to break through the perimeter fence and to crash through the side wall of the dome to reach the money zone. That's where the diamonds were being held. The digger came into the dome itself before being parked outside the money zone. Once inside, one lesser member of the gang started throwing smoke bombs around and Cochrane attempted to break the glass where the diamonds were stored. Inside the dome, Cochrane knew that the glass could resist the force of a 60-ton ram raid, but his plan was to weaken the glass with three shots from the nail gun and then another gang member was going to use a sledgehammer to smash through that glass. The plan was working and the gang were literally, once again, inches from their loot, from the diamonds. You kind of want them to get it this time. Like, they've tried so hard. Absolutely. One of them was quoted as saying, I was 12 inches away from payday, and he later stated, it would have been a blinding Christmas. I would try and do that in a South East London accent, but... I think you'll just embarrass yourself if you do. Definitely, agreed. The police pounced on four members of the gang as they attempted to smash their way into the display case using the sledgehammers and the nail gun. As the four men were being arrested, the other officers stationed around the dome arrested another man who was in a high-powered boat on the Thames, ready for the getaway. The police also arrested another man who they suspected of monitoring police radio frequencies. He was detained on the north shore of the Thames opposite the dome. All of the suspects were apprehended. Millman was apprehended sometime later that same day, obliviously waiting in a van nearby. Oh my God, how embarrassing. So that he Such a shame. That it wasn't going properly. Once all of the suspects had been detained, they were taken to different police stations in South London. At the scene of the arrest, David James, the Dome's former executive chairman, stated, they were all on the ground trussed up like Christmas turkeys. He added, it was relatively calm and they were almost joking with the police who were standing over them with guns. Detective Superintendent Shatford defended the decision that was taken to wait until the gang had reached the Diamonds before arresting them. He said, our chief concern throughout was public safety. We decided it was better to let the robbers get to the vault, get what they wanted, and we could effectively imprison them in a safe, secure environment. Sounds completely sensible, because we also know, they didn't know this, but the Diamonds aren't even there. So even if they had got away with something, they'd be getting away with replicas anyway, and... It does seem a lot more safe for the, for the sort of wider, wider public, doesn't it? Yeah. The robbers had intended to go down in history as the gang who had pulled off the biggest and most audacious robbery of the millennium. To be fair, the millennium was like 11 months old at this point. Mm-hmm. So it's probably not saying a lot, is it? Yeah, but it's still pretty decent. It was still massive. But yeah, it is a bit like saying at like nine o'clock on a Monday, like this is the best bit of the week. And yeah. It's like, you've got a lot more to go. And Mondays are never great. Mm. The raid was fashioned on the ageless smash-and-grab principle, so that's what we'd seen with the two previous raids. But these weren't your high street chances. They used state-of-the-art technology, anti-surveillance devices, and they had seemingly limitless funds to equip a sophisticated, military-styled operation which would reap a multi-million pound payday. The case came to trial a year later on the 8th of November in 2001. It was heard at the Old Bailey and only six members of the gang were present as sadly Terry Millman had died of cancer. 
which I think is sad. That's always sad, whoever it happens to. Yeah. On the first day of the defence case, Cockrum discussed a lack of security inside the dome. He said, I couldn't believe how simple it was. I was thinking this can't be true. It was a gift. At first, I thought it was pie in the sky. But after going down there... I couldn't believe security was so bad. There was nobody in the vault, no security workers, nobody walking around looking at what anyone was doing. He stated that had the plan succeeded, it would have taken a very short time from hitting the main gate to getting back across the Thames, five minutes maximum. He also added no one was going to get hurt. There was no one to hurt. The dome was always empty which was a bit of a kind of running joke on the fact that nobody visited it. Cockrum explained that the nail gun that he'd brought with him was purely to be used to break the glass in the vault. And he did say it wasn't to be used as a weapon at all. The gang had also brought ammonia with them. But again, he had an excuse for this. So he said that was there to remove any traces of blood left by him. So I guess if you think about it, they're smashing a glass case, massively reinforced, using a sledgehammer, a nail gun... It's highly likely that they mm. could get injured and leave blood at the scene. So I think it was him that you mentioned right before that was really forensically aware. And he is. Yeah. To even think ahead to the fact that I could get injured and I need to be able to clean up that blood so they can't find me from that. That isn't something that many criminals would think of. And would you know that ammonia would remove traces yeah, of DNA? I didn't know that. In, um, true crime. I don't think, like, unless, I guess, because he's a criminal. But yeah, that's really clever. Really interesting. He explained that the body armour was to be used after the raid for protection when he was scheduled to attend a meeting with associates to discuss the sale of the gems. And this is really the furthest we get in terms of what was going to happen if they were successful. Mm. So a diamond like that, you wouldn't be able to break it down. It's just not really how it works with diamonds. Whereas gold, we've seen that before with Brinks Matt, they would just melt that down and sell it on and probably turn it into like a million engagement rings. So the diamond was very different. And from what I saw, it was pretty much believed that the case was um, a rich Middle Eastern was looking to buy it and mm-hmm. it was being stolen to order. So I think that's very interesting. Yeah. Betson told the jury that his brother-in-law, a guy called Michael Waring, who was working at the Dome as part of the perimeter security. So they did have an incident. They kind of did, yeah. So this guy told him about um, a school friend, a guy called Tony, who was also working there. Betson claimed that Waring had told him about a plan that Tony had put together. Um, So he said Tony had got this plan together. Um, He had a backer, someone to buy the jewellery, and he said the security was crap there. So interesting. So that's what got them the idea of that's a good place to hit. This is where it was born from. Mm. Betson then went on to say, I had every confidence in him. There was no way I thought he would betray me, not for two seconds. If this had come to me from someone else, perhaps in the pub, I would not have gone along with it. But it was the background to where it had come from. It was solid. Betson explained how he developed a trusting relationship with Waring and with this guy called Tony. I did not think he would try and do me any harm. I trusted him. Cockrum also said that Betson had told him that Waring was in on the plan. Called as a prosecution witness... Waring totally denied that he was ever part of the plan or had offered to act in any criminal way by providing information on the security. At the trial, Crown Prosecutor Martin Heslop QC said that the raid was planned professionally, carefully and down to the last detail. He said it was so well organised that it would probably have succeeded had it not been for an equally professional, careful and detailed police operation. Heslop stated that to minimise the risk to the public, arrangements were made to keep children away from the danger area. But for obvious reasons, it was not practical to alert all staff to the possibility of an attack. 
After a three-month trial, the jury of seven women and five men reached a 10-2 to two majority verdict after it deliberated for nearly seven days. Wow. Judge Michael Coombe accepted the majority verdict and so the men were found guilty. The judge told the defendants, you played for very high stakes and you must have known perfectly well what the penalty would be if your enterprise did not succeed. The judge added this was a wicked professional plan and one which was carried out with the minutest attention to detail. Mercy Mercifully, the police were on to it. Betson and Cochrane, considered the two leaders of the gang, were given 18-year sentences. 18 years for a robbery that didn't even happen? Yeah. That is crazy long. We've seen convicted murderers go down for less. less time. That's actually mental. Other gang members got sentences ranging from 5 to 15 years. Um, and after sentencing Shatford, our man Shatford, um, he was now in charge of the Serious Crime Group in North East London. Um, he said, I'm delighted with the verdicts and the sentence. They were a ruthless team of criminals. Had it not been for the police, they would have committed the largest robbery ever. I believe Betson was the mastermind. He's a dangerous man and was known to the flying squad. I believe he was responsible for a large number of armed robberies in the past. He speculated that if the raid had been successful, the Russian mafia would have been involved in the disposal of the diamonds so we've heard middle mm. eastern guy yeah. stealing to order we've heard russian mafia as well so there's a couple of possibilities there yeah i'm sure there's enough people if you know the right contacts or whatever in the black market then there's enough people that would want to buy that Betson and Cochram appealed their sentences not long after being sent to prison, citing one of the judges at the trial, Judge Coombe, his behaviour during the summing up of their defence. He basically fell asleep and snored. No. Oh my yeah. god, that's fucking hilarious. And I know some I know court cases can be really boring, but that's you would so think this would be an interesting one. It doesn't matter how boring if your job is to sentence somebody. Don't fall asleep during it. Lord Justice Rose, oh one of the three appeal court judges hearing their case, said the judge very frankly admits he was asleep. It didn't matter whether he was snoring or not. If he was dozing off, he wasn't paying the attention he ought to have been. The question we have to address is whether it is arguable that, in consequence, these convictions were unsafe. Yeah, because I suppose whether he's asleep or not was the case majority, and, and it was. And Would they have had the same sentence whether he's asleep or not? They probably would have had the same sentence. She said, everyone can be forgiven for lapses of concentration, but it is another matter if there is sleepfulness, drawing attention to the person who is asleep and deflecting the jury's attention. It was one of those, really. So there were three appeal court judges. Some agreed with them, some didn't. Ultimately, their appeal was quashed, which I can understand because there was a shitload of evidence there. Fast forward to 2012 and Betson had obviously been released from his sentence at this point because he was involved in another bloody robbery. Oh my god, so he's literally out of prison, back to the robberies. Yeah. I wonder if this one actually worked this time. We'll see. Um, so just briefly, in the early hours of Friday the 23rd of March in 2012, Betson and a few cronies uh, managed to get hold of a heavy-duty digger and rammed it into the outside wall of a cash depot in Swanley. They did manage to gain entrance, and once inside, they realised that the fucking building was empty. Oh my god, that's hilarious. These people are just the most unlucky robbers ever. Realising that they might have got it a bit wrong and seen a warehouse a bit further along, they thought, right, we'll smash into the warehouse, that's where all the money is, and that was fucking empty as well. 
Oh my god, were they just drunk? <laughs> I don't know. So, um, it literally was all over in two minutes and um, they ran off empty handed. But again, it wasn't long before uh, he was found and uh, convicted and sentenced to prison once again. So, he wow. never learned his lesson. He did not learn his lesson. And then, just in a sort of brief, interesting postscript, one of the diamonds, so there were 12 diamonds in total. The Millennium Star was the massive one that was worth 200 million. But the 11 other diamonds, uh, one of them was sold actually in, I think it was 2016 in Hong Kong for 22 and a half million pounds so it gives you an idea as to the value of them wow that was such an interesting case interesting that technically no crimes actually happened obviously I know what you mean technically technically no yeah and you know criminal damage and all of that stuff but really no they've not really done anything that's so interesting I really enjoyed that it was a bit Good. different as well. I like it. Bit of a departure for us. Yeah. So, guess what I watched on the weekend? What? I watched the TV drama based on, you know, the Falkowski... Um, oh, the Stalker, the Stalker case, yeah. Very embarrassing. Wish I'd watched it before because I called him Jan Falkowski and his name is Jan Falkowski. Oh, fucking hell. How did and we I, not know that? I even know a man called Jan and that's how you spell it and I even knew that. Cringe. So, what an idiot. Um, but honestly, I would really recommend it. So it was made for ITV. Yeah. I don't know if I said that in the episode or not, but basically it's on YouTube. It's called You Be Dead, and it is brilliant. The woman who plays Maria Marquez is just, like, she's just so conniving. And even though I knew exactly what was going to happen, I still really enjoyed the programme. Is it a drama? Yes. Yeah, so I know I asked that before, but you were kind of like, it's a drama documentary. It's, it's based on the, tr- so it's basically the entire story is completely true. It's not a TV series, which I thought it was going to be. It's a TV film. Okay. So it's like an hour and a half long, one go, and it goes from... So it starts off... And it's David Morrissey. He's really good. Mm. Um, and it basically starts off with them talking about their engagement and stuff, and then it goes all the way through everything that we talked about in the case. Something that I found really interesting, which I'm guessing is quite real, because they, in my research, the writer was saying that she got them to tell you know the real truth. But basically, the police call and they're like, we just caught her in that phone box. Do you remember when they did the fake wedding? So we've just caught her, here's her name. And they're both just kind of like, well, we don't even know who that is. Oh. And then they're like, well, this is what she's told us, is how she knows you. And he's like, oh my God, she's literally just like the girlfriend of one of my patients. Like, that's ridiculous. She's nobody. And then Maria starts talking to Jan and said she like approaches him in the street and is saying to him like why are you ignoring me why won't you talk to me he's like just fuck off or you know words to that effect and then she then says the rape claim and and sends him a text message that says haha got you i think he says something like do your worst bitch, mm. or something like that so whether or not those are exactly the words that were used i i'm assuming they were because it seems like this uh, the film was really well researched but yeah honestly i'd recommend you watch it and then all of our listeners as well it was a very well done film and what's it called again you be dead and you just the letter you oh so okay like yeah speak. yeah it's b like the letter b no it's the word oh b. they should have done the theme there you be and then dead d e d yeah. or something yeah but yeah no yeah you the letter b b e and then dead d e a d cool yeah. i'll watch that it was really good and david morrissey obviously is just a great actor anyway so Anyway, that was a bit, of, a bit of my weekend. So let's get on and um, do some mentions. Yeah. So we've had some people mention us on Facebook. So Aidan Turner, isn't that the guy from Poldark? I don't think it's it could, actually could the guy him. from Poldark. Could be. We've had Ian Hamilton, Simon Cotton, 
Jason Abercrombie and Darren James. Thank you so much, guys. Yeah, Darren James of yes. Patreon. Yes, yeah, fame. thank you. Um, yeah, it's been great chatting with everybody. The um, Every single week we obviously have our discussion thread that gets posted. So on a Wednesday after work, that will be up. I think I usually do it about 6pm. Once you've had your tea and you've had a listen, come and have a chat with us. Nice little treat. It is. I think that that's what we're giving people. We're giving people a treat. I hope so. I think so. Um, also wanted to kind of mention some people on Instagram as well. I mean, Instagram, we've, we kind of talk to people a lot more on Instagram. I think it's a little bit easier, perhaps. It's more difficult on Facebook because you kind of join in the group. But please do come and join the group if you'd like to. It's quite easy to find us. You just literally search on Facebook for Seeing Red, a UK true crime podcast. Sorry, Mark. Um, but yes, yeah, so Instagram, we've had a few people who've mentioned us in their stories or done some more posts about us. So... Sorry if I miss anybody off, but shout at me if, if I do. Send me a, send me a DM. Louise, send us some abuse. Don't send us abuse, please. Send us like a, please can you message me, sort of message. So we've got Louise Darcy, The Sinister uh, Sinisterhood Pod, Basic Debbie Joe, Catch You Done It, which Catch You Done It is so much fun. They do like murder mystery sort of quizzes and clues and stuff, and you have to work it out. It's good fun. Um, Cabernet and True Crime. And also Cabernet and True Crime have started a true crime book club. Which wow, that's amazing. I'll yeah. send you the info, you'll, you'll love it. And Sinisterhood Pod, I know I know of that as well, I just can't remember it now. It's someone who I listen to. Yeah, so You might have cool. seen it, it might have been someone that I've told you about, I don't know. Um, Hathi Martley, Blood in Snow, Boaz Murderinos, Sunshine 9487, Colin Lamond, or I don't know how you say that, he's the one Lamond. who gave us um, the Jodie Jones case yes. to talk about, yeah. that's really good. Hopefully he's going to send us over some photos and stuff from the area. We'll get those up on Insta. He did mention actually that, because um, I was thinking that the area was quite rural, but it's actually not that I rural I saw that. At all. Yeah, yeah, he said it's like 10 minutes from Edinburgh. Yeah, so interesting. Um, a View to Kill, which is a really fun Instagram page where they show the glasses of murderers and yes. criminals. That's really you fun. You love so that. Each, I think they do it like maybe once a week, maybe more often than that, but it's brilliant. It's good fun. I basically want to buy all of them and decorate my downstairs loo in it. The Murderific Podcast, Abandoned Vandal, Nick Vladit, Vlilik, I don't know how you say that, I'm very sorry Nick, and then also Greatest Gumshoe, who is a new podcast where you can, it's going to be interactive, so do you remember those books where you get to the end of the page, it's like a goosebumps or something, and then it says, if you do this, do this page, if you do that, yeah. it's only two or three episodes in. And each week they'll be asking people to vote on what they want to do next or like the clues. And then at the end, you submit who you think did it, the, the crimes that made up. And they say, like, who do you think did it and why and how? So that's quite fun. And thank you to all of our fellow podcasters who have either played our promo or talked about us. Mm -hmm. So we've got Ignorance Was Bliss, which I love. True Crime Island, another great one. UK True Crime and the True Crime Enthusiasts. They're all amazing podcasts, actually. Yeah. Thank you, guys. And I feel like we've mentioned her every single podcast episode, but obviously the Outlines podcast as well. You would have heard our promo for Jess maybe last week or the week before, so that's great. Also, um, hashtag scared for the awesome shout out that they did. So I was literally on the plane listening, wasn't expecting it at all, and they just basically started telling people how lovely we are and how nice we are, and it was really kind of them. Hashtag scared are quite a new podcast. I think they've got maybe seven or eight episodes as well. They're very similar in sort of like how old they are as a podcast as us. And it's two girls from America. And they basically each week will be telling each other a couple of different stories. There'll be, for example, alien stories or 
true crime stories or just different things every single time and they're just so much fun to listen to like they really are so i'd really recommend listening to them as well we talk about a lot of other podcasts all the time but it's nice to do that i think we've got some some good little people in our little true crime podcasting community someone new that i wanted to mention um so andy parish is all the time chatting to us on like facebook and instagram he is the um creator of the blog no remorse he's gonna be starting his own podcast amazing yeah so he hasn't got an episode yet he's only got his promo so far but you can search for it on well a lot of different i i listen on podcast addict and it's already on there itunes etc did he write episodes for other true crime podcasts yes. as well yeah. yeah yeah so um paul and adams he's yeah written, he's written episodes for them if not more people as well but i definitely know about them too um so yeah his new podcast is going to be the no remorse podcast so kind of leading on from his blog and then finally i'll stop talking soon oh, no, jesus sorry but we had a really interesting instagram message from um i'm not going to say the name just in case like she doesn't want to be named i don't know if she'd want to be or not she was basically in jail with joanna Dennehy. oh my god i think why didn't you tell me this because i wanted to surprise you and i wanted Fucking to hell, i'm real. shocked so she was in prison when Fuck. so she was in prison and she was pregnant at the time yeah and she said that Joanna Dennehy, like, looked after her loads. She was actually, like, really lovely to her. And she was like, it freaked me out a little bit. And it was not what I expected. But, yeah. What, so was she sort of saying, like, leave my friend alone when you did She basically your... just, like, looked after her. No, she... No, no but I mean, like, was yeah, no, the one that messaged her. She just said, like, it was, was really interesting yeah. to listen to her episode. Okay. Um, funny, like, you know, funny story it is. Yeah. And yeah, so she, the woman who wrote to me was pregnant, and Joanna Denhe kind of was like a good friend to her. Thanks so much for getting in touch with us. Yeah, so I found that really yeah, interesting. Yeah, and we, we wish you all the best. Definitely. I think that is kind of I'm shocked you totally her. left that I know. to the end, yeah. so, like, and not told and me anything like, at and all. Like a big, and a high yeah, note, I'm say. shocked at that. Yeah. Uh, I'd also like to say thank you to everybody who has reviewed us and rated us on iTunes. Yeah, thank you guys. Please rate and review. I just want to give a couple of shout outs. So we've had one from Case File Fan. I'm not sure if I gave a shout out when we did our advanced yeah. pre-records, but hey-ho. You might get to. Um, but this is a more recent one. We had JRW5045938. Really that. catchy. Really <laughs> catchy yeah, username. Yeah, that's a really easy username to remember. Um, so thank <laughs> you very much for your comments. All feedback's taken on board. Definitely. We can't see your username if you just rate us. Um, so, But thank you anyway if you have. Sorry that we can't sort of name check you. But yeah, please keep them coming. Yeah, reach out on social media again. We really appreciate yeah, that. We love having a chat with everyone. And we'll be back as normal next week with a, a non-advanced pre-record. Also, um, completely didn't notice, did we? Jodie Jones, double J. Yeah. As, How the fuck as did we not notice that? everyone wanted to point out to us on Facebook. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Um, but yeah, We so genuinely hadn't noticed that. No, we didn't even realise. No. So, um... Yours hasn't been Jay's, which is good. And my one for next week, which I'm going to keep as a surprise for you. Okay. Also not a Jay, so we're fine. Look forward to it. Don't forget to go and watch our video on Patreon, guys. See you next time. Bye. Bye.
Hi angels, it's your girl Louise Romball and I'm the host of the Open House Podcast. Therapy quite literally changed my life and sent me straight into my hot healing girl era. Now each week I share my story, the good, the bad and the downright juicy and chat with some of the world's best therapists, psychologists and wellness experts. From love, sex and dating to attachment styles, nervous system regulation, wellness hacks, hormone balancing and more, nothing is off the table. I've emptied my bank account on therapy and healing so you don't have to. So if you're ready to leave the past in the past and build the future you've always deserved, me and my favorite experts are waiting for you on the Open House podcast. Listen now wherever you stream your podcasts and I cannot wait to meet you.